I sort of dabbled in the world of professionalism, but basically, like to use that word bohemian, my whole life has been like absorbed by the creative realm. But at the same time, it's not always rewarding in any material sense. And I think that because I'm now, what, 53, I can speak to like why to do it or why to keep doing it, even though it's not something that you're looking for fame or you're not looking for money out of it. It's just that the art is its own reward. And to be involved with or to be creating something is a joyful process in its own, you know? So, um, like when you asked me to do this, first of all, like I consider it an honor anytime, but especially to a group like someone like you that you really, you really put a lot of passion and care into, even though you're a lot younger, you know what I mean? I respect it where you're coming from with this. So when I started thinking about it, I said, well, you know, if you got to talk about anything, you got to be real about what you're talking about. It, so coming from a core of who I am, I shrunk back my story to like childhood. And I realized even when I was a little kid, I just, I like creative enterprise, you know? So in, in that, in those days, like for me, like my dad was a private art dealer. So I was around like the Warhol factory. I was around, you know, the last of the abstract expressionist studios and people like that. But one day I remember being on the subway with him and um, I don't know, I saw a graffiti train come in. I must have been five years old because my memory was holding his hand, you know, and, and seeing a train coming in and recognizing it like, hey, that's not the way the train was supposed to be. Somebody did something to it. They made it look colorful. They made it look exciting. And um, I asked my dad, like, who did that? You know, what is that? And he goes, well, you know, kids sneak into the, the train yards at night, and they paint their names and other stuff. And right from being a little kid, I was like, I want to do that. And my dad was cool, so he was like, all right, well, practice. You got to get a little bigger, but when you get bigger, you, that's what you do. So that kind of like, obviously I got a head start in the creative arts by being around my dad or like my mom was a ballet instructor or my mom was classical. Um, she used to sing like German art songs and Italian art songs. So I grew up in the world of like, you know, music and poetry and art and all that kind of thing. If my parents brought me in the movies, it wasn't like cars exploding. It was like, you know, Fellini movie or something like that. And um, anyway, once I discovered graffiti, it was like the moment at which I made art or creativity my own. And I understood the realm that like, this is something by, for, and of basically children. Because the older graffiti artists at that time were maybe 16, 18. What year is it? I mean, I was five in, say, 75, so I'm going to date it then, although I can't you know, pinpoint it exactly. So, um, but graffiti, like whole trains, I mean, 
probably yeah. by the time you moved it, I don't know if you saw even the last of it. Cause well, just the books. Oh, books, yeah, yeah, because by 88, 89, it was pretty much, you know, a thing in the past. But it was ubiquitous, like, growing up. Like, every kid, whether you were Italian, white, Jewish, black, Latino, everybody put their name up or their neighborhood was covered with signatures. And I knew I wanted to be part of that. And, uh, you know, like, my sister showed me, you know, oh, it's how you make a bubble letter. And I remember she said, okay, and then you put shines on them, and then you, she had this idea of also putting Band-Aids on them, and I still don't understand that. Like, okay, they were bubbles, so I guess, like, they were popped, and they were repaired like a spare tire. So I started doing the bubble letters, and then... You left out the Band-Aids. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, no, I think I tried it, but I didn't understand, like, the, the purpose for it. And then me and my friend Ron, uh, it was basically the brothers that were doing it, like the black kids in my school. In Queens, it was really, I didn't understand then, but looking back, it was segregated, my school. You had rich white kids from Queens, and then you had the poor black kids from Jamaica, Queens. It was PS 101. And um, so it was divided down the middle, and if you had hot lunch, you had to eat on that side of the, the, the cafeteria. But if you had brought lunch from school, you ate which makes no sense, right? Just, but it was a way because most of black kids were on the lunch program, free lunch program. But without thinking I was crossing over some color line, uh, we were like we used to hit each other with the lunch boxes while in fights. And uh, they said, you can't bring the metal lunch boxes to school anymore. And I know it sounds like such an insignificant thing, but this was a tipping point that pushed me over that side because suddenly we're bringing bag lunch to school. And I didn't like the way everything got squished together, the sandwich. And so I said, Mom, I want to have hot lunch. She said, you want to eat the school? And I said, yeah, I want a hot lunch. Suddenly I'm on a line with, first of all, rowdy and fun. But then everybody on the line was either a break dancer or a rapper or a DJ or a graffiti artist. And mind you, we're, we're still kids. But it became... That was what was important to everybody on that line. What creative bent were you pursuing? And some were good at all of them. But graffiti was my thing. And right away, like I started getting respect on that side of the lunchroom. And I wasn't very well accepted by the whites anyway, because we were Sicilian. So we were like ethnic white living in a basically like wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant area. So when I got accepted by that side like right from that age like eight eight years old maybe I became part of like the hip-hop world yeah. and um so then it was quite a while until like I could actually take what was in my head and start putting it out there so you know we would sketch our little things and and finally one day me and my my friend we we stole a bunch of spray paint and we decided we we're going to paint on the school and Lucien, I know that you're on top of being expressionistic and, and you have like a conceptual art component. You're also coming like you have real craft. You, you have knowledge. I had none of that. I really, I didn't realize once we got to the wall, I'd never used a spray can. And I didn't understand that that in itself had a whole skill set associated with it. So as I'm using the spray can, it's dripping everywhere, and we made a complete mess. And I went home like prouder of myself than I'd ever been, you know. And it was just on my school. And to tell you the truth, 
at lunchtime, I brought all the kids out to show off, and it had already been painted over. But By the school. By the school. But I was like, I did it. You know, I finally, you know, that was from being with my dad, and I want to do that. Finally, I'd taken steps. Um, and then it was a few years from there. See, I was eight years old at that time. It was a few years from that point until I would actually ride it on the train, which was my ultimate goal, based on my first vision. And the reason I want to talk about that is because, like, everybody, like, kids know what's up. And we were all kids once. And on some level, we betray the child in, in ourselves. We go, oh, no, I want to be sophisticated, or I want to be educated, or I want to do things the way other artists or other creatives have done it in the past. When you know very well what the fuck you want to do as a kid, the kid inside you, you know? So everybody's got that. We all have that in common. And like a lot of people that they say, oh, yeah, I wish I could be an artist. I think, Everybody's fundamentally has it in them. And okay, it could just be, I don't want to call it a hobby, but it could be something you do in private. It doesn't have to be up on walls or sold or anything like that. Like I used it as an example, I know in Uganda, there's a certain people that all the women, they paint on the mm -hmm. side of their, their houses like a certain design. And there seem to be certain patterns to the way the women make these designs or motifs on the side of their house. But when the anthropologists went and quizzed the women, they were like, nah, that's just something we do. It doesn't mean anything. They, they couldn't beat it out of these women. Like, they're just like, no, it's just because it's like the voice of the soul. And um, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, that was my impetus. That was, like, what stimulated me to start following a creative bent. And at some point, Maybe you get yourself into a place where it, it pays and you're getting accolades from other people that are in that realm. Or maybe you do it in obscurity, but I think either way, it's rewarding so long as you remain true to yourself. Like, when, when rap first started becoming like something you were hearing on records and on the radio, I remember um, I, was, I was listening to like Sugar Hill Gang or people like that, and I was like, kids I know in my school are much better than that. And they would just play the beats on the, the desk and they would rap to each other. And to this day, most of my friends that were just street poets rather than I'm a recording artist or I'm a professional. I think a lot of the, I mean, one of them's in the room with us right now, the guy, he could knock holes in a lot of people with big rap careers, but like they're not even trying to do it for anybody's, to please anybody other than themselves or their immediate you know you want me to keep going or you had other questions I think you know for me just from knowing you for for all these years like I've caught in you know little glimpses of stories of you know like New York art history Clemente and, and things like that I'd love to know especially as you talk about like we all have this sort of like innocent or or unaffected by creativity in us you know at what point did you do you think that like that evolved for you and you started to it hasn't i mean and yet it has or i mean as far as like your exposure to those other no I, I think i know what you're asking but right from the gate like what i was interested in imagine i got involved with hip-hop before it was known outside of like neighborhoods 
and there wasn't even records of it or anything yet. So by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old, even though I was a white boy and I was from outside of like, I wasn't from those certain areas like South Bronx or areas where it was really happening, but I had already started making a name for myself just by riding on the trains and just by, because imagine when you went to ride on the trains, like, first of all, you couldn't go without a big knife because when you got there, there was a gang. And if you weren't from that neighborhood, the first thing they got a baseball bat and they're like, yo, give me your paint. And okay, you could go uh, like a sucker and you could get beat up one time, or you could say, nah, nah, I came here to paint. I didn't come here to give you my paint. And then you take your shit out and they go, all right, you go ahead. Like they don't even want to fight once you, they know you're going to fight back. So once I discovered that in myself and I was able to paint on trains, by the time I met Basquiat, Keith Haring, all those people at the fun gallery, I was already part of this world. So I wasn't looking, they were like, I'm, look, Basquiat always had a very strong sense of himself. But Keith Haring, let's say, was more of like a fan of the inner city experience because he was, he moved here from like Pittsburgh or somewhere. So they wanted to be around Lee Quinones and Futura and Dandi and all those guys, just like I did, but I had more of an in with those people because I was actually in the tunnels. So all the artists that I met from that point on, I don't know, they had to give it up to us that we were like out there taking risks to do our art. It wasn't for you know, galleries and museums and things like that. So uh, by the time I met, you know, even later at that point, like to me a big deal for me was like Martin Wong because Martin Wong had a foot in both worlds. Martin Wong was like around us, like graffiti artists, like the real deal graffiti artists, the guys I grew up looking up to. But he was such an eccentric, he never even like put himself out there like an important person, like an artist. So when I finally dazed and phase two brought me to a Martin Wong show. And I was like, wait, this is that dude that was like so self-effacing and so chill, and he's like a great master artist, Martin Wong. So someone like that, I was, even though I was close to him, I was also a secret fan of his. But anybody I met after that, after I kind of proven myself, like through fire, like a baptism of fire, I don't care if you made a million dollars or if, if you know you're in the Whitney Biennial or if you're they made a movie. Huh? You'll miss. Um all of that, you know, is subsidiary to are you out there proving yourself in a you know, in a real way. So a lot of creative artists, just their studio practice, and you mentioned one like Francesco Clemente. Like everybody I knew from the street, they respect Francesco because he's in the studio every day. He's a poet, you know? So- Was there that connection even then? Like- What? That graffiti artists that do from the street were like aware of Francesco. Yeah, people, well, well, you know, Francesco, look, he- That's someone that definitely is a mythical than, you know, like, yeah, he's mythical, period. I mean, he, he exists in a mythical realm. I mean, his whole life, all his thoughts are very abstract. And the things he cares about, like, it, it, 
they're not talking about that in People magazine. They're not even talking about that in the New York Times. He, he's like thinking about, you know, Sappho and Virgil and the Egyptian pyramids and the Inca, and the, you know what I mean? So he, he exists, his whole mind exists in a mythical realm. So all the graffiti, like, now when you talk about graffiti artists, there was also the avant-garde that really had an overlap with people like Francesco. So if you take like Jean-Michel, being someone who had a foot in both worlds in those years, also Ram L Z, you know, who isn't talked about nearly enough. I know lately he's coming on as more, but he's not yet a household name, which I believe he should be alongside Basquiat. Because Ram L Z really was, he came out of Far Rockaway, Italian and black, he was a graffiti artist, and then he turned into a theoretician. And his iconoclast panzerism, I mean, you, you could teach that in a philosophy course and still come out not really understanding everything that he was representing. So at the time when Ram Z was extrapolating all of his theories that he, he came out with the um, Gothic uh, futurism and all that, it fell very much in place with like, um, you know, uh, uh, Vito Acconci and then Francesco Clemente and these people that were on the cutting edge of, you know, not trying to sell a picture here. You know, we've got something very serious to say and we're, we're a force to be reckoned with on the cultural landscape. So there was an overlap. Like, a lot of people think like, I don't know, graffiti artists were just like writing their name. And yeah, a lot of them were. But even that was the, the soil out of which you had higher and higher levels of like avant-garde um, ideologies that were being sprung out of that, you know, that uh, cultural milieu. Yeah. Yeah. For me, you know, like the one thing that I feel like is, is something that's a, a curiosity of mine and not having the perspective or been on earth or been in New York or long enough to, to see this and it's not something you can really pick up from like textbooks or Wikipedia is like when you mention the tunnels and you mention, you know, the, the trains of the late 70s and to be here now and, you know, like I know that you you navigate, you know, through the fine art world as well and, and, and other sort of subcultures. I, I, I'd be interested in hearing from from you like how, how that, the shift, you know, and maybe not just like where it started and where it is now, but like all the periods where the things you've noticed that like led to the next major change because I, I think you would agree that like today there doesn't seem to be that mutual respect between like maybe the blue chip or the fine art world and the graffiti world and there is like this soup in the middle that's very interesting that I think is becoming more and more popular today where you can do like because I guess like part is becoming so commercial right you have a lot of people who are making art showing it on Instagram and, and creating like this alternate thing which I think is is really interesting um but yeah, I'm, 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 I would love to hear like how you've seen those things sort of evolve over time from well, the trains. To yeah, I mean, like even when I was younger, like you were accursed to be given the gift of like and to be an artist, and like if you were poor, everybody told you to get a job, and if you were rich and you decided to be some form of artist, even an actor or a poet or a novelist. They, they would disown you. And little by little, um, enough artists have made history or made, you know, 
I mean, after Picasso, you know, then you had all the abstract expressionists that lived in obscurity up until their 40s, even 50s, and then became, you know, uh, sort of made men, let's say. And after that, suddenly, well, I guess Warhol really was the coup de grace of like, oh, suddenly it was a viable career path. Oh, you want to be an artist? Okay, you go to school, you get a, what is it called, MFA or whatever those degrees, and then you can have a career as an artist. But even the world I was born into was unthinkable. It just wasn't proven by history to be, uh, you know, a realistic expectation that you were going to make something and also be able to take care of family or yourself by those efforts. Um, so like when I was younger, you would go to a show, it could be Francesco Clemente, it could be Robert Motherwell. There were like 40 people there. 10 were other artists and gallerists, five were collectors, five were the press, but there wasn't this whole breed of people that were trying to be artists themselves and were hanging on to the art. Now it seems you go to an art show and there's you know a million people there. And um, so that, that realm of people also gives it the power. So um, how did it become like that? You know, I, I watched it happen and, and that like, you know, we all, like growing up, we all, I knew Keith Haring better than I know you and all the years I know you, you know, there were only two or three nightclubs we would all go to. So we, we would see each other a few times a week and there wasn't enough other let me call it hip people that were interested in even being around the arts to flesh out that world that each one could have their own scene. So like, there was just one. There was one big scene and all the gays and all the ghetto kids and all that, it was like we were the oppressed, like ostracized, marginalized group. So, you know, like I've had people say to me, oh, I think I'm black or something. I said, no, but I've gotten a lot more love from black kids I grew up with than, than a lot of the white kids. So I get in where I fit in, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to be anything I'm not, but I'm definitely gonna go where I feel welcome as opposed to trying to force my agenda on a realm that you know, isn't looking for what I have to contribute. You know, So, um, I, I mean, I was lucky to come up in graffiti in where it was all new to people. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't new on the street, but it was new like breakdancing. People never seen that before. Now it's, it's sort of like, it's funny because- You're pioneering something. Yeah, I, I, w I just happened to come in in the last days where it was still a pioneering movement. And, and a kid that I know that, actually he's in your age group, uh, his father's an artist from Italy. And he, when he, the kid was graduating from high school, I went to the graduation, and the artist said to me, he said, Nemo, tell him he can't write graffiti now. He goes, when you did it, it was vital. He goes, now it's so mannerist. And I never heard the word mannerist used like that because I guess everybody knows after the Renaissance, you had the mannerist period where people were trying to do things in the manner of the Renaissance, but they didn't have the education. Yeah. So I see a lot of people writing graffiti now, but I won't pay attention unless it hits me like right over the head because it's old hat at this point. It's already been done. It was been done in, before I started writing. It's funny, I feel, uh, sometimes I, I, I feel the same way about painting or the traditional Absolutely. Music. Well, that's why I always see you, you're always trying to push the, the borders of like what art is supposed to be. That's why I've always like, 
you know, paid attention to what you were doing. Or even like certain graffiti artists came way after I'd quit and stopped, like Rambo, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like when I saw mm -hmm. Rambo starting to do his thing, I was like, hmm, that kid's different. Like yeah. he, he's doing it in a whole new way. Well, I think there's always room to, to innovate in, in any medium or form. And, and but then there are also maybe though there's room to also explore things that are like maybe not considered art or but yeah I think as much as I feel like painting or the fine arts can be repetitive it is until someone comes and does something and shakes it up it. and that's what an artist is supposed to do you know not to try to replicate what's been done before in some uh, you know negligibly new way but to make it completely new unto itself you know like um, you know, like uh, my friend who's with us now, um, he, he, he's a rapper, he was doing uh, rapping under the name of Guns Murder. When I first heard his music, it was all in the pocket of the beat. And then as he kept making music, I was like, oh, he's not even really riding that pocket anymore. He's just expressing himself. And the rhythm is sort of like there as a indication of where he could go but he so what i'm saying is like when i hear rap today like you'll have one rapper and then a hundred imitators of that one style and the art world is the same way like i go to art shows i couldn't even tell you who did that and you know the art i grew up with you knew a de kooning was a de kooning or a gorky was a gorky because they were fighting for their individuality they were fighting for their very lives it wasn't a game to them. And it wasn't uh, a livelihood, strictly speaking. It was, <coughs> it was from their blood, you know? I, I, you know, I want to go back to this thing you were talking about where, like, every child has that sort of curiosity and creativity uh, as, I mean, I don't know, I, I guess it's the Internet that really, like, revolutionized a lot of that, right? Like, not, not that, but revolution right the idea that like we all have an audience or we can reach people um, through ways without having to travel um, it, it for me I'm always conflicted because I, I, I subscribe to the idea that like everyone is an artist and everyone has some form of creativity which is like a, a way for them to express what's in them or what's coming it's coming out of them um, and trying to understand like where that where that leaves your Picassos and your and your Mozarts, you know, if, if we all are artists, then is it that some gravitate or elevate themselves to an, another plane? And I think it's just important because I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot of art students, a lot of creatives are always striving to be that, you know. When I think there is some value also in, in just expressing yourself and having that audience, whether or not it's historical or not. I don't, who knows if anything today is going to be historical? It will be. And, you know, I, I think that for one thing, you know, they, they say like an oyster gets a little grain of sand inside its shell and then it starts, you know, scraping, trying to dislodge it, and then it builds pus around it and that turns into a pearl. So to us, it's a treasure, but to the oyster, it's a cancer. So it's the same way, like, a guy like Picasso, people act like he stepped in shit or something. That dude never stopped painting, drawing, sculpting, changing, you know. 
it, it, when, when Paloma mm -hmm. and them were, I think, 19 or 20, they brought him to a nightclub in the south of France. He was 65 or 70. And they went out to a party till 4 in the morning. They all went to sleep, the kids. He said, no, I got to go to my studio. You know, so it, it's not like Picasso got lucky, you know. And if he had a little bit of talent, he had a lot of talent, he also, you know, worked with it. And, and Rembrandt or any other people, you, you, you know, they, they were just, they weren't out hanging around. They were, they, they were buckled down to do their thing. And, they, you know, Cezanne, like we look at Cezanne in the museum, a lot of them he left out in the fields. You know, he, they weren't good enough. Or Modigliani, like, he would do those sculptures out of the limestone, paving stones, and a lot of them he threw them in the sand, you know. So the fact remains, it's like, if you're really going to be about it, I mean, let's say fundamentally everybody could be an artist, yes. And I think everybody should sing, dance, act, make movies, make whatever, you know, creative uh, spirit, you know, inspires them. But not everybody's a genius, you know. And like my dad used to say, uh, I remember one time, uh, he brought my art history class for a tour through the Met. And uh, the teacher stood back and let my dad just kind of talk. And he said, uh, we were standing in front of a Jackson Pollock. And the kids were like, ah, we don't really understand this. He said, yeah, OK. But don't say, you know, you could do it. Because that's like looking at Sir Isaac Newton has like a whole notebook about physics. And you open it up, and it's a bunch of A's and X's and funny signs. And you oh, it's meaningless. Now, clearly, it's not meaningless. It's because Sir Isaac Newton, we could put a rocket on the moon and things like that. So same way artists that devote themselves to that path, and they're given a certain amount of talent, but they really refine it, refine it, refine it, and don't stop. <coughs> that's what that separates you know, men from boys. So I, you know, I've met certain people that I felt were geniuses, but they just didn't want to do the work to bring it into full fruition, into full maturity. It's kind of like a, a wine, you know, certain wines you could drink after a year or two years, but you age that wine and, and then it becomes something really great. You know, because some things, they just take time, it takes work, you know. So I guess like that's why even in a, you know, like I'm doing stuff now, like I've got projects, I, I've been doing a graphic novel, I'd like to get up here and talk about that, let's say. but. I don't think that's really helpful to talk about because I'd like to talk about what we are all at core, which we're all that kid that is excited by creativity. Or each one of us had that moment like I did with my dad, like, I don't want to do that. You know, it's how much we follow up on it. That's, yeah. you know, because life's not, you know, terribly long after all. Seems long, you know, you, you want to waste time here and there and I'm in love and oh now I'm heartbroken and you know you want to devote all this time to essentially like meaningless stuff you know but if if art has a meaning to it and you dedicate yourself to it I feel like it's going to be rewarding in its own way whether or not anybody sees it anybody likes it or you ever see 10 cents you know it's still yeah. worth pursuing I like I like you you hit a few things for me that that strike me um, like you said, meaninglessness, and also um, like the reward, you know, I think that 
I'm just imagining the Picasso going back to the studio at 4 a.m. And thinking about like, you know, what reward is he chasing? You know, like he's not, he's not trying to get gallery representation. You know, like what's fueling him every day to do that? And I think that because, and I hate to pigeonhole the conversation in art because this applies to, I think, music and other creative industries, right? I think that like when something becomes formal or becomes commercial or becomes a market, then you're chasing after the like metrics that the market deems as successful, right? A museum show or a gallery show. Um, and then maybe that's, maybe that's why I feel like a lot of it has become like, I love the word you used, um, merit, no. Mannerist. Mannerist, right? It's, it's like, what were, those, what were those artists chasing for, right? It wasn't, it wasn't to get signed to a gallery, right? It was maybe something within them that they need to, to prove. And I think that maybe is why we see less of those types of artists or, or creatives today because well I, I think that there I mean like for instance I was out in the 80s you know I, I was 10 or 11 years old my sister was in a play that Andy Warhol's lover uh, Victor Hugo made at the Mud Club so I was at the Mud Club I was at Danceteri I was at all those places that were like the real fulcrums for the creative downtown world and, um, you know, people say to me sometimes, oh, what was it like in the 80s and you were around this one and you were in that one? I was like, same now. You know, there, uh, you might, I, I, I don't go to Bushwick, let's say, but I know that Bushwick is very much like what the Lower East Side used to be back then. You know, that you can't afford to live in Manhattan, you get a place here, it's big enough, you can work, you can do this. And then it creates its own little world out there. So people say, well, I don't see it happening. Well, yeah, it's not in like the Wall Street Journal or something, but it's happening. You know, because there's always going to be people that got that bug in them. You know what I mean? Like the oyster with the grain of sand. It's like there's always going to be frustrated people that are just, uh, for one reason or another, they, they turn to their creativity instead of, oh, I'm going to just be a drug addict or I'm going to just, you know, go kamikaze and jump off a bridge one day like basically when you commit yourself to the creative act and you say like I, I read one of the saints uh, he said good better best never let it rest till your good is better and your better is best you know and if you commit yourself like that like it's its own reward every day like again I, I said I went through this and I'm not doing it like to plug what I'm up to now but the um I, I wrote a play 10 years ago, and I, it was about like bunnies and puppies and kitty cats, but in a ghetto kind of reality. And I, I came kind of close to getting it produced, and another kind of guy would probably kept the pedal to the metal and got it on the stage. But I felt like the, the theater people thought it was too silly, and the other people thought it was too serious, so it fell through the cracks. And little by little, I found AI. And AI, I'm, I'm not letting AI make it into a graphic novel, but I'm using it as the kind of tool. And, um, you know, I feel like a kid playing with a dollhouse because I'm like, oh, make, you know, a bar or a pool hall and then make a cat. And generating with, images. Yeah, and then, okay, make a cat with like a pink pimp suit and then I'll put him in there and I clip it out and I, it, you know, I'm doing it on Photoshop. But I have the same excitement as I've ever had. Like when we used to steal spray paint and go in the train yard and had no clue what we were going to put up there. And 
I mean, I made some god-awful, ugly things that I'm really proud of that disappeared. I mean, one of the moments I was proudest of in my life, it's so stupid and nobody outside, even in this room, you guys might think it's an idiotic thing to think this was a big moment, but there were the older kids that wrote graffiti in my school. They always used to lord over me, and I was little for my age, too. And uh, they used to laugh at me. They were like, oh, you're bad at graffiti and whatnot. And I got with a little crew in New York, but they were more serious, and they kind of they straightened me out a bit. So, And they were tougher. They were, like, bad. Like, you know, they were kids from the projects. So they were all a lot tougher and more like they weren't af I was afraid of the dark. Like, when I would go in the tunnels as a kid, I was still afraid of the dark. And I remember we, we, we jumped into the train tracks, and my boys jumped on, and like I was like, oh, maybe they're going to forget me, and I'll just leave. <laughs> and they came back, they were like, yo, Nemo, come on. And I was like, fuck it, and I just jumped. And next thing I know, I'm in this realm with like, you know, gangs and rats and cops. And, but anyway, um, wait, what did I say that? Oh, yeah, so I, when I finally painted, not my very first train, but the first train I did that wasn't completely laughable. And, you know, uh, we had our names, like what we call TikTok, like the letters went like that, you know, to give it some action. And I put my name and then my friend's name, and we did two characters back to back, like shooting electricity out of their hands. So the older kids didn't know I did it. I don't go around like boasting, you know? And they, they're out uh, actually smoking angel dust where the J train goes. And my fucking name came by. <laughs> and they were like, little Nemo did that? Because they had never written on the trains at that point. Yeah. And they came to me and they said, yo, they, they had to give it up to me. They were like, yo, we didn't get to that stage yet. And you, you went there. Yeah. You know? So like that was really a moment where like I felt like in some very small way I was pushing the culture ahead. You know? So then at that point, also graffiti artists were kind of we were the stars of that realm. Like, I would go to those graffiti shows, and, like, yeah, not only were Basquiat and Keith Haring and Martin Wong and the people that I still look up to this day, but then you had, like, Matt Dillon or Madonna or all these different people who were trying to <coughs> hang out on that scene. And I was already, like, I already made my bones in that realm. And that's before then, breakdancers became the big stars because they were in, like, that movie Flashdance or different things that were breakdown, and then they made all those movies with breakdancers as a star like Beat Street, et cetera. And then little by little, then the rapper became the big star. And the one thing uh, that was funny for me is that before then it had been a real melting pot, graffiti, and like you had white, you had Asian, you had Latino, and you had black. And uh, once, hip-hop got taken over by the rapper, the whole paradigm shifted where it was only about like the African-American experience. So I kind of had it in a weird way like back out of it. And like, cause I felt like almost stupid jacking it. Like, oh, I'm about shell to Adidas and stuff like that. Where I had always been that, I kind of stepped away because it was kind of people that um, like in the, in the school I grew up in, like, I saw the way the teachers and everybody were conditioned to treat the black students, and I didn't like it. So when I saw my, like, my black brothers actually getting an opportunity to be heard, I was like, okay, that's their spotlight. Yeah. You dig it? So that's when I started getting more involved with, like, 
culture and art from a European or a Euro. That, that's when I, I started looking more at like Caravaggio and Giotto and people like that. And that's how, like, then when finally I met Francesco Clemente, I wasn't talking to him, or really my number one friendship was with Julian Schnabel. Um, you know, if I see him right now, we're just gonna talk a blues streak about what films we've seen, or I'm going to the ballet tomorrow, or, you know, because all things cultural, really, it, it's like why we get up in the morning. And it's not always our own shit. It's not even, oftentimes it's not even the art of somebody I, I like. Like, for instance, me and, not to drop names, and especially in a negative light, because he just died, but Bryce Martin and me had a really mean argument about some stuff. And we never reconciled after that. So my girl like um, wanted to go to some art shows. And at the time, this was about two years ago, Bryce Martin had a show up at Gagosian. I said, look, I'm going to bring you into this. I think what he, this guy does is pretty silly, you know? But I guess, I don't know what happened, but I walked into that Bryce Martin show and I was floored. I was like, either I'd been missing his message all along or it's around the time he caught cancer and he started really being way out on the edge because each one of those paintings was like just jumping off the wall at you. It was something real and compelling. So, um, I, you know, I guess there was an evolution in my life where I left kind of the street alone more. But imagine also my dad and my mom had been involved with like art in the classical sense from my very young years. And they bring me to all those things. And you know, the Metropolitan Museum, I knew it, I, to this day I could probably, I know what's in every room of that fucking place. Um, but I think the street, uh, the hip hop was a, a popular movement and it was an art that was created by like the, the people, you know, actual everyday people where like what you're talking about, what makes an artist an artist, and then there's a Picasso, you know? Um, I think that when you have a popular movement like that, it's almost like a messianic age. It's like everybody's given a little spark of the spirit to save themselves with. And, you know, something better than what, like watching the Kardashians or like popping a pill or something like that. You have something to get high with mm -hmm. that you can generate yourself. And, um, I guess that I felt like really honored and privileged to be part of a movement that, like I said, kids were making the beat on the fucking desk or you would sketch out this thing in your notebook instead of paying attention in class and at night you'd try to paint it on the side of a train, which then would fucking leave the, and it might go right to the acid baths in Coney Island and disappear forever. I don't even have photos of the shit I didn't. I don't need them and I don't want them. And if I meet people today that write graffiti and ain't never heard of me, they I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was there, I did what I did, and I proved myself to who? To me. Yeah. You know? And you know, at that point it mattered. I proved myself to the people that were immediately above yeah. me. That's real. Yeah. You know? And when people came in the tunnel, and the, you know, I mean, at one point, you know, like we used to go paint trains at 175th Street in uh, Washington Heights. And all those kids there, the graffiti kids, they were the sons of, you know, they were the babies of like the wild cowboys, all the, the, the big coke dealers. 
So it, was, it wasn't unusual for them to have guns in there. So you go in with your 10 cans or something like that. There's no way to go buy cans at that time. You know? So when they catch you in the tunnel, they want to take your cans. And sometimes they might pull out a gun on you. And you had to just be like this. Nope. You know what yeah. I mean? And they got a gun on you. And they're like, all right, this dude's crazy. I'm leaving the fuck alone. Because I'm not really going to shoot him for his spray cans. Yeah. And when you show you have that kind of heart, they're just going to let you rock. And so that's why, Lucian, like when you talk about all these great artists, yeah, I respect them. And when I go to the, the museum and in, you know, like when I went with uh, like Julian's novel after, you know, I participated mm -hmm. in the making of Basquiat and then uh, Before Night Falls. But then he made his next film and he presented it in the United Nations in the Grand Assembly Hall. I'm like, like, how big can you get? You just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, I respect that. I love that. But imagine what I started out doing and what I still care about is, in a way, pretty humble. You know? That's moving part. And it, it's all one thing. It's all, you know, like uh, Kandinsky. I didn't read the whole book, but I, my dad, like, said, okay, if you're not going to school anymore, I want you to read this book. And he gave me the uh, Search for the Spiritual and Art by Kandinsky, and he said, you know, art is like a pyramid that's moving through space and time. And, you know, you have the very small group at the top that can appeal only to a small group beneath them. And likewise, until you get, like, mass culture, you know. But in time, as it moves forward, even the ideas of, like, Picasso and Cubism are proliferated to people like ourselves because they've been so disseminated by so many other sources. Like when Picasso was with Gertrude Stein and they were bringing in the American GI trucks of camouflage, he said, look, that's cubism, you know? So, I mean, you know, you, you see like, I remember there was a hairspray girls used to use and they didn't realize it was like Mondrian's imagery. That's mm -hmm. like, it's everywhere. So little by little, an artist just tips the scale. like. For instance, I mean, I saw a little girl, she was this fucking big. She's in front of Uniglow, was doing a thing with, I think, Keith Haring. And she's like posing next to Keith Haring. I'm like, how's she even identifying with this thing 40 fucking years later that he used to scribble out right in front of me? I would go sit in Keith's studio all the time. Just, I had nothing to do. I'd be on Broadway. I'd go pop in and check him out. And um, all these years later, people are still identifying with it. Because that guy, when he was five years old, he found his little thing, but he kept doing it, you know? Um, we have like a little bit over five minutes left. We want to add anything before we do like- No, I said way too much already, and I'm sorry if I bored anybody, you know? You guys have, anyone have any questions for Nemo? I have one question. What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to an artist of standing that's finding their way? Well, now, I mean, I just saw something, uh, a guy talking about happiness. He said, you want to be happy, you got to make $1,000 a day. He said, everything costs $1,000. You, know, you want a Christmas tree, you want a new radio, you want a chair, you need it. It, it really has become about making money. You know, and I don't mean to cheapen it. Like after everything you hear me say, I still believe all of that. But um, there's careers to be had now. And also, when I was a kid, it was very hard for a woman's artist. <coughs> like, 
And my dad used to, I mean, we're Sicilian, so we could be like kind of like very uh, boys club-ish. But my dad like worshipped the women artists because they had to be twice as bad ass as the males, you know. So he would like Louis Nevelson or you know um, Louis Bourgeois or, or uh, even Emily Dickinson, like people. You, but now like you can go in and you can kind of cash in on the fact that women have had it harder. So I think that it like right now it really seems to me it's all about making a career in art. And luckily, there's all of these like immediately like, like I make films sometimes. And at one point I got a budget to make a film and I hated every minute of it and I never even completed it. So I got maybe half a million dollars to do a film. I had 50 people following me around. Oh, we have a break now or we have, you know, they lost the whole feeling for what I felt was the creative act. And um, now I've reduced myself to going on YouTube and stealing images and going on iMovie and making something and putting it on YouTube. And whoever likes it, likes it, right? So now it's within your means to create really whatever you want to do. It, it's not as difficult as it used to be to actually make stuff and get it out there and make people pay attention to it. But I would, I would say that... Um, same way like a guy like Jay-Z is like a zillionaire and the real rappers that really started this shit can't hardly even pay their rent. I think someone like you really should cash in. And I don't mean only be about money, but you shouldn't allow them to deny you, you know, that you, you got to go and you got to storm the Citadel and you got to say, hey, I'm a, I'm a creative and I, I want what's coming to me and... and you know, I want to make a movie, or I, I, want to, I want this wing of the museum, and I'm going to take down all of these pictures, and I'm going to put this up, or whatever. You know, you got to really go in with both barrels blazing, I think, today. You know? Great advice. <laughs> Isaiah? I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I have a question. I've been reading something recently about Shirley Clark in, yeah. the, in the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah and how she was using like the rooftop to do these visual pieces and was like workshopping nonstop. And then obviously the film, the connection to me is super heavy. So kind of through conversations I've had with you in the past, thinking about like space in that time and how musicians like really tapped into that. How is that kind of in that era, what did I say about those people versus like, uh, if I look at like uh, John Lurie versus the guy in his band that defected and went on to become kind of more like, yeah. you know, playing on the mama as a space versus John who was kind of like, you know, more of a known figure. Like, like how did that manifest in that time? Like space and time, how much was going on with people actually playing? Because now it's, you play one game a month and that's a lot. Back then, I, I assume it was a little different. Well, people were smarter back then, and I mean, people read books back then. People saw movies without a bunch of special effects, and actually read subtitles if it wasn't made in America. And and when you talk about Shirley Clark, again, that's someone like those art, those female artists I was talking about. That they just like, just really bad, bad, badass people. You know, nobody handed her anything, and. She shook up the world, her, Maya, Darren, you know, and, and like, 
at that time to be someone like that, she's almost like, a, um, I don't know, when you hear like the Roman Empire was attacked by some hordes you never heard of before and they just came in and burnt the place down and pillaged everything. So like, yeah, also with, when you take like John Lurie, you know, you were talking about in those days, like Lower East Side, it was a lot of squats. There was a lot of, there was a lot of dead space. Now everything's been snapped up by all these very savvy developers. You know, like all this area, I used to know guys had squats all up and down here. And people that moved here from wherever the fuck, they didn't need to worry about paying rent. You know what I mean? So I'm telling this young lady, like, go out and tell them, give me a big check. You know what I mean? Before I even started to do anything, I don't have to prove shit to you. I'm the artist. You're the money. Give me the money and then we'll talk, you know? So, so like, yeah, John Lurie, a man, like, we used to hang out, like, every day for about a year, and I saw the way he was. He was one of the first people that was just, like, it was still the Wild West back then, you know, which had its drawbacks, but also it was great because if you were about something, you know, you could just easily manifest it. Now, you're, like, the only jazz musician out there, <laughs> you know what I mean, they, that anybody talks about, you know? And when I listen to the jazz out there, like the, the status quo wants us to listen to, it's not even jazz. It's like, it's like footnotes to some blue note record that was done in the 50s and not even good, you know? So I think that, like, well, me and you got, well, we got to talk privately because you have already carved a niche for yourself, you know? And it's like they say, like, running water digs its own ditch. You know what I mean? You're already, you know what I mean? Because John Lurie was in a totally different landscape. That's what I'm saying. You know, the, the use of space is, like, super clear in this. It's like one of those millennium film magazine things. And it's just about Shirley Clark, like, documenting how much she did with people that you will, will nobody knows who they are, but she was having them make their own films every week at a workshop and then at the same time filming legends like Jack and Queen who are far beyond even like any of the cats to me at that time who were just trying to follow in those footsteps but she was like two, one foot in each. No, Sh Shirley Clark's a revolutionary. I mean a true revolution, like Black Panther Party level revolutionary but of the creative realm. And I, I mean, I remember like uh, the anthology film archives, I used to show films over there sometimes. I mean, I would present films. So I showed um, uh, Shirley Clark, The Cool World, which is, yeah, probably one of my top 10 favorite films. And a famous artist came there with his whole entourage and he really didn't like the first line, which is uh, a, a, a nation of Islam, uh, uh, you know, preacher saying, you know what the white man is? The white man is the devil. And that's the first line of the movie. So right away, this artist didn't like that one bit. And by the end of the movie, he stuck around, but he had a bad taste in his mouth. And as he left, he said, you know, Nemo, I appreciate you doing these things, but that was a really bad movie. I, I, I really didn't like that movie. And he left. And I was like, oh, fuck. I was kind of crestfallen because I'd been there to please him above all. And then he got home and he called me and he said, you know, the movie was pretty bad, but there were some redeeming moments. 
And he called me like three, four days later. He goes, you know, that's probably one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. You know? So I think we just can't be afraid, Isaiah, in short, to make our own turf. You know? Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.